So what sort of moral standards guide you, David? And in what situation would you be willing to compromise these? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I suppose if I think about moral standards, I've got ones that I have very strong views on, say environmental sustainability. But I own a motor car mm-hmm. and a motorcycle. I have a takeaway coffee cup sitting on the desk you here. You do, you do. So that's compromise, I guess, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We're really excited about today's topic, which is something that David and I seem to talk about constantly, which is the role of values and moral standards in how people behave and make decisions. And on this episode of Think Business Futures, we're speaking to Dr. Gatanjali Saluja about her research into moral decision-making. Now, does that make you nervous? Yes? Then stay with us. We're going to find out how people's moral frameworks can be influenced and speak to someone in the influence business. Welcome to Think Business Futures. This is the podcast where we attempt to go beyond the buzzwords and take cutting-edge research and real-world examples and explore the complexities of current business today. I'm David Brown. I'm Associate Dean of External Engagement in the Business School. And I'm Nicole Sutton. I'm from the Accounting Department in the Business School too. So, Katanjali, thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to talk to you because you've been doing some really interesting research. Things like age discrimination, jury bias, charitable giving, stereotyping, moral standards and judgments, even the effects of celebrity scandal. So before we get into the research itself, can you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you come to study such an interesting, in fact, captivating topic? So this is during the time. So I was in, I'd completed my qualifying exam in um, Hong Kong in HQSD, and I was thinking about what thesis topic I should work on. And um there's a lot of pressure when you're choosing your thesis topic because everybody says, oh, you know, it should be something that's current, that's going to have you excited for the next, I don't know, five, ten years. So I felt a lot of pressure. And during that time, there was there was some scandals, corporate scandals that um, were really current. So one of the big ones that really affected me was um, one of the founders of the business school that I went to um, was accused of insider trading. So he's, he was like this big shot in Manhattan and he was like, he used to be principal at McKinsey. Like he was a really well-respected, successful person. So I started thinking, why would you do that? Like it's not for the money. It's, so what is it about? What is, what is it really, why would he engage in this behavior? And, and so that's what really got me interested in looking at why obviously some people think that it's okay to engage in this behavior. Uh, And um, so there would be differences in people who would draw the line and say that, no, this is not okay. And that's how this whole thing started. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Wow. What a beginning. Um, And it seems from looking at your research that you're a bit of an expert now about why people behave badly. Can we start with one of your earlier projects, for example, about why people discriminate, particularly in terms of how they might discriminate based on age? Could you tell us a little bit about that project? Uh, So a lot of my work has um, looked at mindsets and and mindsets are, um, they're basically mental procedures which you can activate um, through a certain task and then people use them in unrelated tasks later on as well. So one of the mindsets that I've been interested in working on is a cultural mindset. And you would have 
would have heard of individualism and collectivism as being cultural differences, so that's fairly common. So most Westerners are seen to be individualistic. They don't really, um, their own goals and motives are of utmost importance to them. But collectivism is more about group harmony and relating more to others, thinking about what others think about them is more important to them. So that's how these differences might, so these differences can be activated. People traditionally used to believe that these are chronic differences, and so um, you're either individualist or collectivist, but now a lot of the newer research shows that you can activate these tendencies. Is this a little bit like, um, I've heard of priming before? Yes. Is this yes. a similar thing? Yes, exactly. Okay. So I can prime like, Unicorn might be more individualistic mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. a on a general basis, but I can prime you to be more collectivist um, through certain situations or tasks. Oh, wow! How 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 do you do this? So I might just simply ask you to. So one of the simple techniques we use is we give people a paragraph, um, and it has a lot of pronouns. So the pronoun could be like I went to the city and I saw this um, window and I shopped and I ate ice cream or it could be we went to the city and we shopped and we all bought a lot of clothes and so we make people circle these pronouns so you either circle the I my or you circle the we our um, etc and then that activates this whole feeling about either being part of a group or being more individual mm-hmm. and um, yeah so that momentarily will shift your behavior towards being more collectivistic, but just momentarily. So it, the prime effect might last for two minutes, five minutes, maybe 10 minutes at the most. Okay. And yeah. then how does this mindset then relate to, like you said, behavior, right? So mm-hmm. how might this then relate to, say, discriminatory behavior? So um, what we find is, and there was some of this um, in the literature as well, is that when I am more collectivist, so collectivists, tend to make attributions so if let's say somebody behaved badly they might attribute the behavior either to situational Mm. so they might think that oh there was there must be something that caused this person to behave in this way Mm -hmm, so not mm -hmm. attributing it to the person themselves but Mm -hmm. to external factors individualists do that Uh, collectivists do that Uh, but individualists tend to attribute behaviors to the person so they'll say that, no, it's because this person is bad. So it's um, it's a more dispositional attribution, more trait-based, rather than a situational attribution, which is saying that a person behaved badly because of some other factors and not because they're a bad person. The whole age-related discrimination thing also just gets to um, if somebody's old, do I do I actually think about them being old in terms of traits? Um, and if I do, then I might be more forgiving of, oh, you know, this person is old, and that's why you know I, I should I should be easier on them or um, things like that. But if I'm making behavioral or situational attributions, then I look at the behaviors of the old person, which might be annoying to me. So, oh, this, he, he's walking slowly or he's being grumpy. And so there are certain behaviors that we attribute to the elderly, which then might make us judge them a bit more harshly and discriminate against them a bit more. So that's basically what wow. that research is about. Yeah. Wow. Well, 
Well, speaking of priming, uh, one of your more recent projects, again, looks at the, this malleability of moral standards, um, which is a topic that we find really fascinating. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of that particular project? Yes. This project started, like I mentioned earlier, but some people find it they're more likely to engage in a particularly questionable behavior or likely to judge it as less questionable um, than others. And so what is it that can we really get people to change their behaviors based on certain primes or certain tasks? Um, and this actually all starts so in philosophy. There's uh, two schools of thought. So there is the whole uh, deontological perspective, which says that um, there's absolute wrong. Things that are questionable are just absolutely wrong. There's no behavior that can that can justify the end. Uh, and then the other the other school of thought is that um, ethics can be utilitarian or consequentialist, where there would be certain behaviors that can be justified if the ends. Um, so, for example, a poor man stealing medicine to save his daughter um, in the deontological perspective would be wrong. Uh, doesn't matter whether his daughter gets saved or not. But in the utilitarian perspective, it's it's fine because it results in greater good of society. Is this like the trolley car example yes, that's yes. used in philosophy? So it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly similar to that. So if you're if you have a more utilitarian perspective, you're you're more likely to push the person in front of the trolley to save five people. For those in the room who perhaps don't know about the trolley car, do you mind just actually explaining what this is? Yes. Yeah, so there's a very famous experiment in philosophy, in ethics really, which um, where they ask people to imagine that there's a trolley that's like a runaway trolley, and it's, it's like a tram, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, it's a moving yes. vehicle. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And gotcha. it's on a track. Mm-hmm. And there are five people at the end of the track who are tied to the track, and they can't Goodness. they can't be moved. Um, so that's one um, that's one track. And then there's a another track that goes the other way, where there's one person that's tied. So the there's a person who's looking at this uh, situation. So the trolley right now is on the path where it's going to hit the five people, um, and he can switch this lever which can then divert the trolley to the other track where there's one person that's tied. So the dilemma is, do, does, does a person flip the switch to divert it where only one person dies instead of five? And the utilitarian argument here is that the person, that's the right thing to do. Morally, that's the right thing to do because you save five people even though you're diverting the trolley to a And complicit in killing that one. Yes, exactly. The deontological argument would be that it would be wrong to do that um, because you're basically then um, culpable for that for killing that one person uh, and you should just let nature take its course. Wow. <laughs> I'm just feeling a little bit uncomfortable now. <laughs> this is great. It's a really good. It's a great example oh. of illustrating those two contrasting positions. Yes. Okay. On yeah. morality. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So, so this, is, uh, this is also yeah. Does the means justify the ends? Yeah. So, or yeah. Or or, or uh, any means unjustifiable. Yeah. Um. So it's. I would say it's not. So the the moral standard, the malleability issue, is not. Um, it kind of overlaps with some of this in that if my standards are more malleable, um, then I might be able to justify certain behaviors or judgments. Um, but if 
there's an absolute standard, a very fixed standard, as you'd expect deontological-based people to have, then you are less likely to, you know, deviate from that standard and um, you will be consistent in your behaviour. So your global versus piecemeal mindsets, how does this relate to this then? So when I was looking at, so I was reading a lot of philosophy when I was when I was trying to come up with a thesis um, area or an idea, and I came across one paper which said that if you, um, so there are like global versus piecemeal is a mindset, and I've spoken about how mindsets are mental procedures. So there's one researcher, Joshua Green, who he activated a visual versus verbal mindset, and so a verbal mindset or rather visual mindset has it activates this tendency to visualize things or situations and verbalizing is the other extent where you're not visualizing um, and he found that if you get people to visualize so if they visualize a trolley dilemma for example they'll make more um, deontological based um, decisions because they can visualize killing somebody or pushing somebody um, as opposed to not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the mindset does have an impact on how I, how I make decisions. And so I started looking at what are the other ways in which this could be manipulated. And that's how um, this whole thing of global versus piecemeal came in. And so the idea is that if you get people to look at the big picture, then they're more likely to have a fixed standard, which is which doesn't deviate too much, as opposed to if you get people to look at the details, do relative type evaluations, then they they get into this comparative mindset, which might lead them to have a more malleable standard. Advertisers take advantage of this malleability every day. In fact, one person in particular wrote the book on the subject, and it's called The Advertising Effect. Adam Ferrier is a consumer psychologist by training, co-founder of Naked Communications and Thinkabell, and as such has probably encouraged you to buy something or do something lately. We tracked Adam down at the QT Hotel in Sydney to tell us about his use of the dark arts in the marketing industry. How did you convince us to meet you in a hotel lobby for an interview rather than in our studio? So I think one of the most exciting things I've found out in psychology and advertising is the best way to get somebody to like you is to get them to do you a favour. So the more you can get people to invest into you rather than the other way around, conversely, the more they like you. So if I'm worth trouncing all around town to come here and be interviewed, then I must be, in your eyes, really good, or else you'd be a mug to do that. Mm -hmm. So the more I can get people to do stuff for me, the more they like me. And the same goes for everybody. In your book, you argue that action changes attitude faster than attitude changes action. Now, this struck me as a little bit unintuitive uh, because to me it seems to suggest that if we wanted to encourage people to perhaps consume more ethically, then we shouldn't just simply appeal to their values or their principles or their rationality, but it's actually better to kind of focus in on their behaviour. Is that right? Sort of. I mean, you should appeal to people's values, and values are really hard to change over time, and advertising is a terrible instrument to try to change people's values. Um, and I, actually, I don't know what changes people's values. It's, that's far more complex. 
But if you can, because we, we like to have our thoughts, our feelings and our actions aligned, and if they're not aligned, we experience from first year psychology, cognitive dissonance. If you can get somebody to take an action towards any kind of behaviour change you want them to take, they'll change their thoughts and feelings to make sense of that action so they're nicely aligned. So it's just about using the power of cognitive dissonance. So, for example, if you want to get people to save, take shorter showers, mm -hmm. tell those people to tell other people to take shorter showers and they'll end up taking shorter showers themselves because they're telling other people to do it. So it's just trying to get people to take the first small step or any kind of action towards the end goal you want them to, to take. What about scare campaigns? Like, for example, how successful have those gruesome ads about car accidents been in changing drivers' behaviour? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, the short answer is I don't know. Um, at university, I learnt that fear appeals um, don't really work, um, but there seems to be a lot of evidence practically that they do. And it's one of those things where if this whole podcast is about looking at the intersection of academia and business, mm. what academia knows is completely different to what business applies. And I always learnt studying psychology, you'd never do a fear appeal. Um, people just shut off and don't pay attention. But then I came into advertising, I realised that they're used a lot and they have loads and loads of evidence that shows that it works. Hmm. So you can maybe reconcile it through the course of this podcast series. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Adam's right. That's what we're trying to do on this podcast. So back to the research. How does Gatanjali influence people's mindset in the lab? I give people, a, I created like this fake newspaper page and there's several headlines. And in in my, because it's, I, I want to activate this whole concept of morality, the behaviors are fairly immoral. So there's a rich um, tycoon who scammed a hundred poor people and behaviors like that, basically. And um, in the global mindset, they ask to look at the behaviors and just come up with one judgment of how moral or immoral they think these behaviors are. In the piecemeal condition, they look at each of these behaviors and they give a judgment for each of them. And so there's this shifting that's happening when they're doing each of them because they're comparing each behavior with the other and thinking about whether this behavior might be a bit more moral than the other one. And so that leads to a more malleable standard as opposed to doing having one global judgment and saying that all of this is wrong. Oh, wow. And you can actually do this. So you can, even just for temporarily, you can yes. prime people or you can, yeah, you can kind of activate these different mindsets to get on one hand to have a much more fixed global um, principled yes. kind of view. Yes. Um, yet on the other hand, the ones that are looking at each different one in turn, they're seeing each situation and its context and all yes. the situational factors. Yes, yes. Wow. Exactly. Okay. And so what then is the implications from that? What happens if I have a more like a contextualized kind of mindset hmm. um, versus this more fixed global overview? What, what's the follow on? So once you activate these um, tendencies and it has an effect, effect on your moral standards, so you have a more malleable standard, you're less likely to be harsh of others' behaviours. So I test these on certain scenarios. I give subject scenarios to judge. And these are fairly ambiguous. Well, they can be considered very immoral, but they're not like, or murdered somebody kind of immoral. Okay, so um, I think, so it's like about, I think I saw in your paper, 
whether or not, you know, the barista gives you too much change. Yes, exactly. And whether or not you, and I think you have an anecdote that the person doesn't give it back. Yes. They actually just pocket the change. Yes, yes. Well, so the, the, the idea is that they've come out of the coffee shop, they've walked a block, they've realized that, oh, I got this extra change. Now, so there's a trade-off. Do I, am I so moral that I'm going to walk back and they're on their way to work? Yeah. So do I walk back, waste that time, <laughs> give the money back to the person, or do I just say, oh, too bad, you know, the barista shouldn't have given me the extra change anyway. Mm-hmm. So And so, so what do your different participants, is there a difference? Yes. So the people who have a malleable standard are more likely to pocket or to say that the person who pocketed the change is not so bad. That's fine. Um, the people who have a fixed standard are more likely to say, no, that's wrong. You should go back and give the money. That is very interesting. So my immediate question then is to do with hypocrisy. So if you've got someone with a malleable moral standard or a fixed moral standard, does this have some influence then on how we perceive hypocrisy? Um, possibly. I would say that People who have um, a more fixed standard are more likely to view people as being hypocritical because they would say that um, your behavior should be consistent. Um, You can't behave one way in one situation and then, you know, a different way in, in another situation. So I would say it definitely has implications. And in your study also, you actually, it wasn't just that... So we have differences in, you know, the, the mally bit of our moral standards. It influences how harsh we are to judge others. Yeah. But you also then looked at then how we ourselves behave, right? Yeah. And and those behaviors are a bit more tricky to capture because we run these studies in the lab and I've had colleagues who've, um, because there's a lot of work by Dan Ariely, and I know you're familiar with some of his work. They get people to cheat in the lab. But we found that that wasn't very easy to do. So we tried to do that, but we couldn't replicate it. So you can just look at behavior intentions and just say that, okay, imagine this scenario, similar scenario, how likely would you be to go back to the barista and give the money back, which are hypothetical scenarios. The only other study in which I've actually managed to get something on actual behavior is... Um, so in Hong Kong, they have a lot of these um, websites where you can get pirated movies, music, um, things like that. So I listed out a lot of these websites. So I told them that the study was about internet behavior. And I looked at how likely would they be to visit these websites, which I would think would be um, more indicative of their actual behavior. And more people with a malleable mindset were likely to visit these questionable websites as opposed to those with a fixed standard. Okay, so it does have some sort of behavioural effect. Yes. Like if you are willing to see, you know, the situational influence on yeah. someone pocketing the barista's change, yes. um, you're probably more likely also to give yourself a pass in downloading pirated material from the internet, for exactly. example. Yeah. Because, you know, it's those people, I mean, like these media companies are just making so much money, exactly. right? So yeah. like what's, what's, so. what's a little bit of pirating on the side? Exactly. Is there room for a shifting morality in the marketing industry? And where does the responsibility fall in regulating moral decision-making? Adam thinks that it's not in the advertiser's interest, 
the onus falls on us consumers to educate ourselves. Do you think there's an opportunity for the advertising in industry to pivot at this point and perhaps encourage a more considered systems to uh, approach? Uh, yeah, I do. I think it's a very good question. I think it's nobody's interest for the, edu- for the consumer to be educated about how advertising works and about the types of consumption decisions they make because I think ultimately what they'll try to do is make less they'll try to consume less and there's not a business, there's not that many good business models in getting people to consume less um, and then on the flip side is every single entity has a right to make as much money as they want and encourage as much consumption as they like and that in and of itself is okay it's just a cumulative power of all of those messages coming together on the poor little consumer uh, asking them to consume can have some kind of negative effects um, so I reckon the onus is on the consumer but I'd, to, to get educated but I'd love uh, advertisers, marketers, the government to spend more time sincerely kind of tackling that issue about trying to educate them and get them, get the consumer to be a little bit more mindful about the decisions they make rather than uh, doing so much mindless or system one consumption. All right, so as we spoke about before, David and I have had many, many conversations about the role of values and moral standards and behaviour. And one of our recurring themes speaks to one of these issues in your paper, namely, how good is it to have fixed moral standards? Because on the one hand, often we think it's good if people behave and act with moral consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet on the other side, aren't there also problems uh, if people have morals that are so rigid that they behave in almost a fundamentalist sort of way? Well, I see what you're saying, but I think... There's one aspect that is rigid, fundamental, so you're inflexible, whereas the other one is what I'm more interested in is whether your moral standard is is more fixed. So, so it's it's more looking at how fixed your moral compass is, and it's not really about being. I I don't know, and you raise an interesting point that maybe people who are more rigid or inflexible in general are also likely to have a fixed moral standard. Mm. But I I'm not very sure if it generalizes to um, their moral compass, for example. Like some people might just be less open to ideas, um, less willing to hear opinions that are different from theirs. But they still um, might be engaging in questionable behaviors because when it comes to their own behavior, um, they might be able to justify engaging in questionable behaviors and, and still, so in that sense, their, their moral standard might be less fixed. Mm. Um, like I'm, I'm sorry to put you on the spot because in one sense, I've just put you back in front of that trolley yeah. and I'm, I'm asking you who's right, you know? Who's right? Who's like? I'm asking you. You know, this seems to be an age-old question in philosophy. Is yeah. it okay to have to take into account context, or is it always better have these, you know, absolutist kind of views mm. about what is right? Well, yeah. I, I, I personally, I think, um, believe in the utilitarian perspective that there might be um, that you should look at greater good. So um, maximize utility for the maximum number of people. Um, and in that, so I think that the right thing for the man um, and the, in the trolley situation is to try and deviate the trolley towards 
the one person and save the five people. Because you can think of that behavior as either this person's responsible for killing one person or he's responsible for saving five people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or, yeah, so does this also mean that you're going to push that guy in front of the trolley too? Well, I can, uh, theoretically, I, I would argue that that's the right thing to do. Mm. But I think that you're right. Um, and there would be a lot of, we it's when when you actually visualize it and when you actually have to engage in the behavior it's obviously a lot more difficult okay so can we just explore this a little further nicole does ask the hard questions sometimes what about the difference between maybe having a moral position yourself as opposed to assuming that's a moral position that should apply to other people. So I think about Nicole's original question, which was around, you know, should we have a, a fixed moral standard or, you know, perhaps take context more into account? Mm-hmm. That presupposes then that becomes a lens in which you use to judge everybody around you. Yeah. But I think that also um, ties in with your hypocrisy angle in, in that if I have a certain moral position for myself, I presumably use that to guide my own behavior. And a lot of times people might, for convenience, choose a more malleable standard for themselves because it allows them more freedom in terms of behaving a certain way. But when it comes to judging other people, I might say that's not fair and this person shouldn't have done that. And so that's also hypocrisy. And I think a lot of people tend to do that. Um, So I think in general people might, I think we'll vary um, on this scale of being malleable and being fixed in in our everyday situation. Okay, so then are we talking about maybe having moral standards that you wouldn't compromise in any circumstance. So you, in a sense, tightly couple your behavior and your moral position. And there might be aspects of your moral position that you might loosely couple or decouple on occasion. Do we have maybe a more sophisticated way of making these judgments and behaviors? I think it's hard to predict. I would say it's hard to predict. And and I'm kind of struggling with how we could, even in a in a like we've we've activated this, these in a lab and it's easier to do because it's a controlled environment. There's nothing else influencing them. Um, but in a real life situation where people are faced with certain dilemmas and judgments and this temptation to engage in a behavior that might be more self-serving uh, but might not be totally right, it's I, I'm yet to see how we could um, influence people to make the right decision or, but I haven't, I've, I've yet to, I think, come up with a good solution for that. This um, might be a really great research agenda. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. But one of the things that a lot of my future research is looking at, um, chronic tendencies. So this whole cultural mindset idea also ties into a global piecemeal mindset. Because people who um, are collectivists, they make connections. And so in a way, their mindset is it overlaps more with a piecemeal mindset. They look more at the details. They attribute behaviors to situations. 
um, individualist mindset, people tend to extract um, a common idea or a main point from information. And so they might have a more global mindset. And so you might find that culturally, people might vary in how how they think of moral standards as being malleable or fixed. Mm. Uh, but that's something that I'm to explore at this point. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com, and you can also search for us on your favourite podcasting app. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. Thanks to Kadanjali for coming in today to discuss this issue with us. You can find her research on the UTS Business School website. Thanks for having me.